0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: I always teach the residents or fellows when you have to identify the structure and then you cut. You don't cut in order to try to be oriented. You have to be oriented in order to know what, what you are cutting because the problems happen when you don't know what to cut and you just cut with the hope that... You're cutting the right thing. That's not going to happen, because if you don't know where you are and you just cut, eventually something bad is going to happen.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Jose Oche Silva is your host this week and happy to introduce our guest, a good friend of mine, my senior residency, a mentor, Dr. Ronald Cadillo. Dr. Cadillo completed his residency at the University of Puerto Rico. He went to do a fellowship in robotic surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. He then returned to Puerto Rico and he currently specializes in robotic oncology and reconstructive surgery. Welcome to Backtable, Ronald.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Jose. It's very good to see you and share this time with you. Thanks for uh, the opportunity. I'm really happy to see you again.
0: Thanks for being here. And definitely, I I mentioned a little bit of your background, but that background is very, uh, I simplified the version that I put. So I wanted to first, we're gonna talk about reconstructive urology and and bladder neck reconstruction, but I wanted to take a few minutes uh, to talk about your journey. You're from Peru originally. From there, you were actually a urologist. For how long
1: were you a urologist? I finished my residence when I came here the first time was during my uh, the year previous to my senior residence. And then you said I decided
0: to leave Peru. Yeah.
1: It's a long story, but Peru, obviously in South America in general, the economic situation was not being very good for traditionally. My family, my mom and my other three brothers and sisters, we have been together since I can't remember. And uh, my mom was a nurse. And... She get retired and in Peru, in South America in general, you work a lot. But the economy situation really is not that good. So eventually, even if you want to, you can really take care or help your family. So at some point, I decided I have to try to find a way to help my family. And I also have been practicing martial arts for all my life. So I, the first time came here to give some classes and my... uh mentor in Peru, recommended me that I was going to be here for like two weeks. So maybe I can use that time also to see urology here, to see other realities. And so the friends of my mentor, it was Dr. Puras, which was at that time, or is still the the chairman. I didn't know that. So Dr. Puras knew your mentor in, in Peru? He knew him through the CO, okay, to the Confederation American Urology, so they were friends at that time. So he brought him an email and so I pretty much shadowed him for a couple of weeks in the office and two times in the university.
0: The trip that was going to be just for martial arts, then developed into a more professional and shadowing with the chairman of the University of Puerto Rico program.
1: Yeah, it was really serendipity, I think so, right? I also met who was going to be my wife at that time.
0: Okay, so you met Carmen at that time, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, so when I returned to Peru, I asked for a a formal rotation here because it was just two weeks so I asked for a formal rotation here and then I come back for three months and at the time I was looking for an opportunity to do a fellowship in another country. I applied to a scholarship in France for a fellowship in laparoscopy. But the problem with that is that you finish the fellowship. It was really a small fellowship, like four or five months, and then you have to come back. Even when, obviously, the education it was good and the opportunity was good, the idea was not really to come back because it was going to be the same. But I was not going to get more reimbursed because I have more studies. So.
0: And you wanted to hurt your, your family also.
1: Yeah, so that that's really the idea. So when I was here for three months, I... Need knew the system, I looked for the program. I really like it. The academic part of the program is, was very good. Obviously the requirements, the ACMG really help you to get an uh, equity in terms of education, right? So in, in Peru it's very different in terms of residents and in South America in general, all depend pretty much of the hospital, the exposure, and not all the residents gain the same education you know, or exposure in, in terms of cases. So I asked to Dr. if really were my chances if I really apply here in Puerto Rico. Because there was not really any foreign residents before, so at least he told me that give it a shot. <laughs> so I I tried. I returned to Peru to complete my last year. Carmen and me were were a couple for that time. And during the last nine months of my residence, I pretty much studied for the step one and the step two. But it was hard because I didn't know English really. So I have to study for the steps with a dictionary. Wow. And she helped me a lot in some parts because it was really difficult to understand everything. When I studied some courses in the university, it was like immunology. Immunology was a chapter right, of the book. Now, when I re- returned to study, it was a book. It was like, wow, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, it was really a humble experience. In the university, I consider, at least in Peru, I was very good, but uh, I it all, all over again Doing your first year, doing the last year of residence, trying to do the senior cases and everything. It was very hard. And of course, language doesn't help. So I passed the step one, the step two. At the time, I have to to take the TOEFL but i have to take it here in the united states not the english as a second language yeah and also the exam with the standardized patients So at that time it was just a requirement for foreigners not uh, for the american graduates as as eventually it was so yeah it was hard yeah it took me like well when I come back here with Step One, Step Two, because I had to take the other exam here in, in United States. Oh,
0: yeah, exactly. You finished Peru, and then you you went back to Puerto Rico.
1: Yeah, I worked with my mentor like six months after my graduation to try to get some money, <laughs> and and return, pretty much sell everything and just put my clothes and everything and, and came here. Took me like. Two years, two years and a half, because when I take the TOEFL, the first time I failed like two times. The part of the, you, you have to do a um, composition in, in that part, and uh, it was always hard. And the other, for the skills of the standardized patients, the first time I failed for my accent, because they also qualify or your accent it was it was pretty funny it was like everything (laughs) is great but your but your accent is very bad it was okay okay so i took that exam like three times because when you go there i I don't know you took that test yeah yeah yeah. i don't know if it happened with you but at that time it was just two locations philly and the other was
0: i think atlanta and houston
1: yeah at that time when i took it there was just two locations and in philly all the patients were <laughs> from India and most Asian people. So it was very hard to try to understand and, and at, the t- at the same time talk. And when they told me that your accent is not very good, uh, my accent is not very good. <laughs> your <laughs> patients <laughs> are <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> During those two and a half years, I worked, try to survive really giving some classes of martial arts. So you were in Puerto
0: Rico giving classes and then studying at the same time? You were going to the residency at that time, sometimes to foreshadow?
1: I show up every Tuesday. You know, it's the academic activities I on Tuesday. So I went every Tuesday and be there, listen to the academic activities. So I went to some journals, not not that much, but I gave classes and I sleep in the dojo, which is pretty much the gym when you, where you trained in a mat during those two and a half years. So I, I knew that part that you slept
0: in the dojo and, and, I mean, unbelievable. The journey that you had and then you pass the test, you apply because then, then you have to apply.
1: When I applied the first time, at the time, the program was not that much. So you have to apply to surgery. And then after you have those two years, you apply in the second year to urology. So it was not really a definitive acceptation to do urology so you can do your two years of surgery and maybe you are not accepted in urology so you, you are finished. But when I applied to surgery, I remember the program director at the time told me that he cannot accept me because I was a foreigner. So after four years of my life, he all of a sudden told me that it was not going to be possible because I was foreigner so that those, those spaces are reserved for people from, from here. But... Then I um, go back to talk with Dr. Puras, with other surgeons that I met during that time to ask for some counseling because I didn't know what to do. So some of them told me to do a... uh, local internship just to get my, my license The other people from different things, but I didn't see how all of those things can get me there. So at some points I have to think, okay, I'm doing this for my family, so maybe I just have to accept that and apply to other things, right? But definitely for me, that was really not an option at, at the end because I already know what, what I like, but I knew that at some point I have to choose. So This was like my last decision before that, so I give it a chance again. Dr. Puras recommended me to talk with Dr. Santiago Dolphin. Santiago Dolphin was the chair of the kidney transplant in Puerto Rico, but the idea to talk with him so he can help me to do this local internship in his hospital. He really didn't have any contacts. He was very sincere and told me, I cannot help you in that, but I can give you a research space here. You're not going to receive any money. It's just so you can help me and maybe I can help you. So if can help you with your uh, CV, it's going to be look good in in your application next year. All right. So I went back (laughs) and talked with Dr. Puras and this is happening. So I don't know what to do. The only way to know was really, I returned to the prime director of general surgery and told him, what are my uh, options? And he told me that pretty much he has to be sure that I going, was going to be accepted in urology. So he wanted to talk with Torpuras at that time. And if you know both program directors, it's very difficult to get a meeting. It took me like three months daily looking for them. And of course, it was not possible. I understand. It's a fair point, right? Dr. Puras? couldn't tell that and couldn't guarantee it yeah but it was a fair chance if he gets accepted he has a fair chance to be accepted so that's uh, the only way and and i understand that and i respect that but that was the thing that i told him since the beginning but for some reason he wants to discuss that so at the end dr lopez which he was the academic program director of general surgery before i talked with him and he told me you know, maybe you should consider the position that Dr. Delpin is giving you. And I went there. I was there for one year doing research in kidney transplant. I learned a lot of statistics and through Santiago, do a lot of research and he's a very special person really. But through him, I didn't know who really he was. He at least worked with him. I published like three papers. I went to different Congress and at the end, he let me do that. He let them give me the opportunity to apply, really apply a general surgery and I was accepted. That took me five years.
0: After your Peru residency, five, far more years. Yeah. And then the rest is history in that sense. So I remember just being a first year resident in surgery that we did a couple of months with you. And, I mean, uh, I remember you knew the Campbells, just, I mean, every page. And uh, you told me, I, mean, I, I know it, you need to know it. And that was one of the things that, as a senior, I say, if you know what I I need as a resident, as the first year, I need to know it. And and definitely, I never forget those, those words. And I started reading. I hate reading. I mean, that's why I do podcasts, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't like reading. But yeah, you made us read and you made all of us better. We started reading the campus together and all that. And that definitely you, you put love in what we do at that time. So definitely thank you for that. So, Ronald, so you are an excellent surgeon. Back then in Puerto Rico, we were doing everything open and you were one hell of a surgeon. And then, well, you decided you want to do more and then you want to train in robotics.
1: Yeah. You know, it's I finished five years, took me to be accepted. Six years of urology in Puerto Rico. I was almost 40, right? 30, 39. In the beginning said, well, you know, I, I'm just going to work. I feel comfortable doing this, I got have a lot of experience doing this. Uh, I always like the difficult cases. Of course, prior practice is very different. So you, you never know, but I have a dream to try to do this, right? But maybe half of the year before the last year of my residence, the senior residence, I went to see Dr. Ricardo Sanchez in Bayamon, and it was the first time really that I see a robotic surgery. And when I see it, it was like, I really like it. I really like it, not because of the robot. It was because I can see the application of what I do open with the little hands. So it was like, maybe I should give it a try again. (laughs) <laughs> it was like a very masochistic way to think because now it has to. I have to apply again, right? And, and Carmen has been supported through all this. Yeah, yeah, Carmen. She really is, and she really was. It was not easy for her to, because also if she was doing internal medicine. And she, at that time, she was applied to Allergy. So at the end, we finished applying she to Allergy and me to Robotics. So, but at that time, really, I couldn't expend two years. So I I, I couldn't imagine to take two more years trying to train. So what I did was, you know, I'm going to look for these programs with programs for one year. Even if they are not accredited, I really don't care. I just care for the experience. I took my vacation of the senior resident in order to to go at least for a week to these places and and then apply. One of those places was University of Pennsylvania. Then I met through David Lee and Dr. Daniel Yun. And they really gave me the opportunity. It was really surreal when I get that email because when I went to all these interviews and you see the people that was there because all those pros were very good. It was not so. It was people from Harvard, people from Vista, John Cowkins, UCLA. It was like I'm from Peru. So it was it was a good. Way to start a conversation, really, from Peru, because there, uh, <laughs> but it was, well, I don't know if it's going to be possible, but let's give it a try. At the end, I went to University of Pennsylvania. I was very happy. The experience there was really mind-blowing, because everything that I could do open, they just do it with robotics. It was like, I don't think this case, uh, they are the because I I do the clinic, so I, some patients came and they will refer. And I don't think they are going to accept this patient. And not that. they accept pretty much everything. It was like a boot camp, really. And, and, but I think it was the only way, really, to change my perspective because I have open surgery so great in me that. Every time that I see a case, I say, well, at the end, if I cannot do it, I, I can't open it. But that was not supposed to be the way, so, because you have to try to change your mind. So when I applied, I was very specific. I don't have any laparoscopic skills at all. So you have to see the robot just once. So you have to teach me since the beginning. The fellowship was hard because I have to take first calls and also call as attending. But the first call week, it was like my third time as an intern. It's like, it's the same calls in Peru, the same calls in Puerto Rico, the same calls in the United States. It's the same. Well, it was very funny. The hospital, it was very good, but it was in a place that not even the taxi driver wanted to go. So you don't have a car. You know, the calls are during the night. You have to answer some consults. It was like, that. you take the cab, and the guy was like, Okay, I'm going to leave you here three blocks away because I am not going to go there. So it's it, wow. like <laughs> trying to call Carmen. So I I'm going to going to answer this call, So just in case you don't know anything about me. <laughs> A couple of hours, I will let you know. Wow.
0: So I, I remember seeing uh, videos of, of Dr. Lee doing the the RPLDs and, and all this complex surgery that yeah I mean that you did over there. But it was the first time for me seeing videos. Of just complex cases. So over there, you you were doing mainly reconstructive surgery. Is that way, or, or you did just
1: kidneys? You did everything? No, doctor. Debbie Lee has a very big experience. I think it's the second biggest experience of robotic assisted radical prostatectomies. And doctor Daniel Yoon, he does any type of case. So they teach me a lot, and then Daniel, doctor Yoon, do partials, adrenals, pretty much everything. But at that time, reconstructive surgery just means pyroplastics, some re-implants, nothing really more complex, some fistulas maybe. I will tell you that at that time, his practice was like maybe, when I started, maybe 10% of his practice was reconstructive. When I finished, it was maybe
0: 15%. So you were doing mainly oncology?
1: Yeah, I was very lucky because the last version of the robot the ISI show up just before I start the fellowship. And the difference of the ISI, the last version, has the near fluorescence infrared vision. So this pretty much is the use of ICG, right? The ICG was, the ICG was is a fluorescence that was used to evaluate vascularity and physiology in the heart and the liver and other organs, but the way of intuitive presented to robotics was to use it as a help in trying to have negative margins during a partial nephrectomy. So that was really the main point of this technology. So you use ICG, you apply it intravenously, and then you can tell the tumor, it was supposed to keep black and all the, all the rest is going to be green. So if you have the base of the tumor green and the tumor is black, then you can say, okay, it's a negative margin. And that is because ICG is going to be absorbed by a protein in the nephron, in the proximal tubule, and the tumor, it has not that protein. So that's why it just keep black. But what happened was that it never worked because... And that is something that you learned afterwards, because the dose that intuitive tell you to use, when it was three cc's, I think. When you use three cc's, everything just is green. Everything. Because it just oversaturate all the field, and it it never was used for that reason, because all the urologists have problems with that. So if you ask, uh, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And the Toro Vasa, Toronio Vasa, in, at that time in Ohio, he published a paper like around seven years after that. And the dose that it works, it was 0.5 cc's. 0.5 cc's, not 3 cc. So with 3 cc's, everything was I me. Mean, so because nobody liked to use ICE at that time, I, I was very lucky because then I started using it during the pyeloplasties and doing the other things. Because he said, okay, this is for vascularity. Always the problem with repairs as that is going to be re So it has to be something with the vascularity. So let's try it. And I remember that we just start doing intravenously. After that, it was for uh, uretrial intra was off-label because it was supposed to give, you, it, to give it intravenously. But when we applied We say that all these patients with these open surgeries or very angry abdomens with a lot of adhesions, if we use it and inject intra ureteral and the ICG, you can localize the ureter, helps you to identify location, also fibrosis. So it was was like, so I have that idea and he published a paper like six months after I finished So he started doing things. He's a very, very good surgeon. He is very resourceful. He's very creative. And that, I think, that was that changed all this in reconstructive surgery. Because robotic surgery, because the way it started, you always try to translate what you know from open surgery to robotic surgery. That was the case at the beginning with most of the cases because there was not really a book, so you can do it. First prostates, laparoscopy help you with the prostate, laparoscopy help you with the kidneys, but the way that the, the robot works is not the same way of laparoscopy. If you really want to be good doing this, you have to see it really like open. Because when you see a laparoscopy I'm not saying anything wrong with that, is that the way that the instruments are used is very different. The, the articulations, the little wrist, it's it's very different. The way of the camera moves, so it helps you. At least I think it helped me a lot. Try, okay, this is like open, it's just with different instruments. But the problem with reconstruction was that it's a very bad environment because everything is not in the location, a lot of adhesions, you don't want to damage other things. but how i can localize the ureter or the conduit if i want to do it because everything looks the same right so i always teach the residents or fellows when you have to identify the structure and then you cut you don't cut in order to try to be oriented you have to be oriented in order to know what what you are cutting because the problems happen when you don't know what to cut and you just cut with the hope that you're cutting the right thing. <laughs> okay, okay. Right? That's not going to happen because if you don't know where you are and you just cut, eventually something bad is going to happen.
0: Like Dr. Puras, blood for freedom.
1: And you don't know because you don't know what is there. So nothing is definitive until you cut. So just take your time. Maybe you need to have more patience, but eventually it's going to pay off because you know where you are. In robotics, the problem is that when you do reconstructive, because most of those patients have not a surgery that cause a problem. So many endoscopic procedures. So the ICG help with that. And then eventually the XI has a, b- a better filter, a better camera, more instruments, the wide variety of instruments that were developed with the XI has also helped a lot. So reconstructive surgery right now, I think is the really great contribution of robotics in the past five years it, uh, it really has moved everything in a field that really didn't exist right because recall okay, you can do all these things by robotics but recall oh okay you have to open it right and for experience you know that if you open a patient in reconstruction it's not it's going to be easier it's it's going to be as bad as as we, but the problem was orientation, you cannot palpate, right? Because sometimes, okay, so I have to touch and see where I am. And the problem always was, so how are you going to get orientation if you can touch? So like the Firefly, the ICG helped with that. And I think that changed everything. At that time, it was created for one thing and it was very awful. Nobody liked it, but it helps us to give this big step.
0: So Ronald, so you, you have that start that process of, of doing more cases, reconstructive, but you mentioned that, that when you left the fellowship, only like 15% were of your cases were reconstruction. So you go back to Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. With only 15% of your cases being reconstructive. And then you go to Puerto Rico and there's a need of a lot of reconstruction. Right?
1: Well, yeah, here I, uh, I was very lucky because also there was a need also, for oncology, we don't have a lot of uh, specialists doing it. It was Dr. Sanchez, Dr. Uh, Omar, they were doing some oncology cases with robotics, mainly prostates. But when I came here, so I remember the first advice of Dr. Yun was do everything, but no reconstructive cases. <laughs> and when we discussed that at, at the time, I really understood. Because it's not like you learn recon and then that's it. I I can tell you that I just know pretty much one case of one person that maybe is outside of the norm. But if you're going to do recon, it's pretty much an evolution. You have to be very knowledgeable. You have to have the resources to repair everything. Reconstructive cases require not plan A, Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, sometimes Plan D, and you can you need to readjust. That's a difficult part. It's very different to do a piloplasty, primary piloplasty, and to do a redo piloplasty in a patient with a piloplasty and four dilations, maybe an endopilotomy. If you are not very comfortable around the big vessels, if you don't know how to control uh, big bleeding. If you don't know how to do a mobilization of different things, it's not that something that I would recommend. All the people that I know that do reconstructive, besides what just one case, have a lot of experience doing oncology cases. I am not doing. I am not saying necessarily that you need to do an oncologist to do these cases, but you need to do a lot of cases to do this, because also it's not just because they are complex and are going to take you a lot of time, is because it's going to take you a lot of time, even if you are good doing it. So it it has has to be, first, it has to be safe for the patient, right? So you need to be very true with yourself, with the patient. I think it really is an evolution. I would not recommend to do a a re-implant in a patient with endometriosis as your first case. So it's uh, because you have uh, to be able to do other things and maybe you don't know how to do it. Even if you see it one time, it's not the same. But I think with time and experience it's possible. I'm not saying that it's it's something that you cannot do, but I think it's going to take you time.
0: But how do you learn
1: new techniques? Are there
0: resources, videos? What do you
1: do? Well, I think like everything that you like and you want to be good at, you have to have a health obsession. You have to see a lot. You have to read a lot. And like everything in life, you have some people that you know that are very good in what they do. You can look for them in terms of videos. I am very lucky because I keep in touch with Dan and he has very, very good mentor with me. And sometimes when I am not sure, it's like, thinking about this, what do you think? And So you can short the learning curve because pretty much I have done a lot of things that I didn't see even in my fellowship. One thing that Dan told me during my fellowship too was that if you are very good and you try to learn a lot at some point, it's very peculiar because all the surgeons, especially in robotics, are going to reach the same conclusions, even if they train in different places because there is not really... Too much ways to do it yeah you can learn some tricks from different things but once your mind change and you can understand really how this works you can say okay i think if i put the truckers in this position i am looking for this and if something happens maybe i can change here so the exposure is going to be better here yeah but in terms of other right now i think there are a lot of videos in youtube uh, and you have to do to be very um uh, critic i see this i like this or i don't like this and also i record all my cases and i see all my cases and it was like, i didn't like this what happens here at, especially at the beginning I, I can change that my hand is not giving that adequate traction i have not the right exposure here maybe if i do so you have just to keep try to be better, uh, but I think it's the same in every aspect of the life. I think my training or my experience with martial arts helping too, because I can see the movements of maybe different way in terms of when, when you do martial arts for some space of time, you have to do it just the way that your instructors tell you to do it. You don't question. You just try to be as close as possible, but you have to understand the movement in order to be as close as possible to that moment for me it, has, it was it has been the same it's like so i don't understand this well he's supposed to be that one to understand right dr lee dr. so I, I i cannot question it because it's absurd that i have zero experience so those guys have thousands of cases so say, ah maybe i am not doing this because so it's all you have to be critical with yourself right and sometimes this is a problem when you try to teach person and said, you know, you can do it this way or that way, (laughs) it's always the same answer. But I am doing it. No, no, you're not doing it. That's why I tell you that you are doing this. It's just so you can improve, right? And I think this did help me a lot. That that thing that you mentioned,
0: the the movement of hands, I I remember residency, I mean, you you try to mimic not just what you see inside the body, but you need to mimic the posture, the hand movement of the surgeon, which is very important. When it's open surgeries, it's more forgiving compared to laparoscopic or robotics. So that's a great point. So, Ronald, so in terms of, I mean, reconstruction, let, let's go talk about uh, the bladder neck reconstruction. W- what happened that you started needing to do more of those reconstruction? Was it mainly open cases that they did strictures?
1: What What's the theology of that patient? Well, bladder neck reconstruction, when I... It said that the reconstruction is like a progression in your praxis. I think Blar Neck pretty much is, I'm not going to say the culmination of that evolution, but it's pretty close because usually you start with the upper tract, piloplasty, redo piloplasty urethral strictures, use, use of vocal mucosal graft for urethral strictures, reimplants.
0: I saw a case that you did with, with Dr. Soto, and you're doing the, the mucosa reconstruction. That's, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, and bladder neck, it's very complex. If you see the steps, it's like, okay, so you reach the scar, you cut here, the flap, you play some vocal mucosa. So in terms of steps, it's very, it's like three steps. <laughs> but to reach there is very difficult. The, the most, well, the etiologies could be like a laser, right, a TRPs, some holops in small prostates has a problem that, that, that's why some people are trying to promote the, to do holops in small prostates, but people that, who are really experiencing that area of the hole they, they said that they're not sure because the range of strictures are very high. It's, 30, 40 grams. But that's a problem. So every endoscopic case really can cause a, a benign etiology, can cause a, a stricture. Prostates in terms of radical prostatectomies, right? Radiations, brachytherapy, trauma. I think trauma the bolchon, is the worst, right? In terms of etiology, I think those are pretty much, uh, at least here, I have seen most about, most cases are uh, most related to radical prostatectomies. Here in Puerto Rico, at, at least those cases has been post-open radical prostatectomy. That is better in some ways and uh, worse in other ways than post-robotics. Usually,
0: they have already tried some DBIU or something before they reach you.
1: Yeah, well, most of these patients, really, the reality of the practice in here in the island, I think, has changed in the past four years. I mean. Because some young urologists have come back after the fellowships. Omar, Omar Soto is one of them. And now is Dr. Guzman, Rafi Morales. So they, they have this background of recon that it was pretty much needed in the island. And they received most of these cases. And these guys, I mean, the patients have been like years going around from different urologists, different DVIUs or even worse procedures. I could tell you, I have a guy who has Teflon injected in the, in the urethra. And so I think that has changed because the reason I am doing now more recon cases is because those guys, Omar, Omar Soto, Dr. Gnafi Morales, they receive most of these guys and after they evaluate them, if they think that something reconstructive can be done by robotics, so they refer to the cases. And that is a win situation for everybody, because they can resolve the problem most of the times, and I think the patient have a good evaluation and treatment for people that really know what they are doing. And if they think that I can help them, so they also help me with the harvest of the oral mucosa graft or other things. and. To have the input of Omar Soto during the surgery for me is very valuable because obviously I don't have a traditional training in reconstructive. So I know that I can do many things with the robot, I know that pretty much I do whatever I want, but at some point when you don't know if it's plan A, plan B, it's good to not have somebody that, you know, we do this open, when we do this open, maybe you can, and so you can translate that. Too reconstructive, right? And I think that's the reason, really, that the recon feel in the island has changed. Uh, and I'm very grateful to have these patients. I really like this surgery. But I think for me, it's just time. So, in terms of after 10 years, I think during the past three years, maybe four, have been increasing. And I think it has been a very good time, a very good timing now we could fit them in the island. And when you're doing the
0: reconstruction, you mentioned Omar does the harvesting of the mucosa. Are all these patients, I mean, in your case, going to need mucosa? How do you decide that?
1: Yeah, well, the evaluation usually is retrograde. All those guys have cystostomies, right? Usually what he does is first, even if the guy has very many DVIUs, he tries to do a very good one. And when he refers me those cases, I know that he has done at least one very good D-value. And be re- very deep, so I know it's going to be more attached. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be more fibrous tissue there. But usually the antigrade and retrograde, he take care of that. Usually we study the the imaging. All depends, right? So because you have to take three three levels, really, if the structure is in the urethra, in the sphincter, or up almost to the bladder. So it really depends because sometimes if it's close, if it's at the level of the membranous urethra, uh, the sphincter, maybe it's going to be combined. So he's going to do like dissection in the perineum and I'm going to do the dissection in the abdomen and then we decide if we are going to transect and he's going to give me urethra and do a do anastalosis or if we if we are going to do a flap. So if we are going to do a flap, is usually it's very short. It's very short. When you evaluate the retroenteroid, you first you see there is lumen, even if it's just a string, or under the space, right, the, the size of the structure. So that's pretty much when you decide if it's very short and it's very short, it's very up. At the bladder is going to be a, a flap but if it's just in the limit between the sphincter and the urethra, that's tricky because sometimes maybe he's going to need to mobilize and then I'm going to have to mobilize up and do what we do. Have done like two cases like that. This
0: procedure is intended so that the patient doesn't have a stricture. It doesn't have to do with continence or anything like that we are just trying to keep it open and then deal with the
1: rest. Yeah, well, if it's a flat most of the time, they are going to be continent. Okay, The continence is not going to affect that much because it's a flap in the anterior aspect of the urethra. You tell the bladder at that point. But if he has to cut the urethra at the level of the vulvar urethra and I have to cut the previous anastomosis, take all the scar tissue, and he has to dilate the pelvic floor to pass me the urethra, yeah, most likely he's going to be continent. So not always it's like that. Not always is like that. okay. 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 But like I said, you never know it's going to be plan A, plan B, plan C. So you tell the patient, so that can happen, right? Always, especially in radiation, you always, but always all the patients. You have to even discuss if cystectomy is in the table or not with the patients. Okay. Because sometimes it's not possible. So, uh, and then it's difficult. Some patients, they don't want to. Well, some patients just want to get rid of that. But if you are with a cystostomy for many years, like I have the surgery in patient with 9, 10 years of cystostomy, and all of a sudden you said, okay, if I am not able to do this case, you will be good with a cystectomy, and so you have that ELAL pouch. So they are used to the cystostomy. <laughs> so if it's not really cancer, most of the patients really don't want it. So but, but that part has to be very clear. Also for uh, when you do reconstruction for very large ureteral structures, especially proximal or all the ureter and illegal ureter is an option. You have to discuss that with the patient too because illegal ureter is very good so the urine is coming down and everything, but it has a lot of metabolic consequences that so patients don't want to deal with or cannot deal with because I have a patient with he uh, she has a very bad case of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Seen, uh, she was in two type of immunotherapy, and the rheumatologist recommend not to do that because obviously that he she only responds to immunotherapy, and uh, the rheumatoid arthritis was controlled for four years, but an an can have other things, right? And it was more the risk than the benefit in, for her. So it's it's a conversation that you need to beat. You need to in those cases.
0: And Ronald, going back to the evolution of the surgeon, when did you decide? Okay, so I'm gonna do the bladder neck. I mean, you just, it was there. There was the need, and you said, okay, I'm ready.
1: How, how did that happen? Well, I have been doing upper tract reconstruction for four, five for years I think I have done like vocal mucosal graft a lot but for the bladder reconstruction I didn't try before because I didn't have a person to do a very good evaluation of the patient and also a, a person that because even if I tried before to do that retrieval of the mucosal graft or the urethra it was not possible for me I can do a lot of open surgery but that part is very tricky because uh, if it's, everything is good, it's good. But if it's bad, it's very bad. And if you really don't have the experience to have the resources to gain some land, to do some maneuvers, and you are not used to that, it can be worse than, than, than the original. case. So I didn't try it before for that reason. When well, no. Omar came to the island and he started receiving this, those cases, yeah. OK, then now is the time, right? Now is the time. I have the resources, I think I can do this, I can do that with a robot, I feel more comfortable. And now I have him to help me. And I am also here to help him. That thing was the point that, okay, I, uh, I think we are ready, but also Omar also liked those cases. So it was perfect, right? Because uh, he was here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he wants to do those cases. So it, I think that at the point that, okay, uh, we are ready to start, but I have, been trying to learn a lot of things a couple of years before, maybe three years. You were preparing for the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not something that has not so much referral points. I mean there is not a lot of surgeons doing that. Now in a couple three years maybe more people have been trying to do than has evolved like for the past four years. I mean so his practice changed it's like 50% is reconstructive and 50% is oncology now. And he's about, has been like that for the past five, six, six, I mean, could tell like maybe seven, eight years. He's uh, one of the main reconstructive surgeons in the world right now. And I'm very honored to have trained with him. And I ask him a lot. I keep touch with him. But now a lot of reconstructive guys have a formal training, are trying to do reconstruction with robotics, because it was the same with oncology, right? At at the beginning, it was not really the oncology guys who started doing oncology. It was really the minimally invasive guys who really don't have an oncology training who started doing prostate kidneys, isectomies. Then the oncologists feel the pressure, obviously. They don't want to lose the field and start pushing it and because they are already great surgeons so they can adjust and but it was something that the moment required to do the change in recon is the same the, the guys who start doing these crazy cases were not recon guys it was minimally invasive guys who because there is a need for those patients so they start doing it and now the reconstructive guy feel the pressure to try to do Robotic surgery. So they are started really doing it. Is Omar, is Omar trying to do robotics? <laughs> well, he tried, I uh, think in Detroit. But like I said, it's, it's very difficult for the reasons I explained, I already explained. Yeah. And I think the only case that I know that they could tell you that's not the case, I mean, in terms of evolution, is Dr. Lisao. Lisao, I think, is an exceptional surgeon, uh, but is an exception to rule. To That guy just, he trained in reconstruction, open surgery, and he pretty much created this field for himself. With uh, Dr. Diane, Neil Yule, Dr. Stiefelman, so they're very famous for for that reason, but Tolisao and Dan, they they have this thing that they can see uh, but Tolisao doesn't have any robotic experience before, so he didn't do oncology before. And when you see the cases, it's like, how do you think of that? Because it's like, uh, it's weird, it's, but, but it works. And after, and you just need to see a guy doing one case and then you see, okay, I will try it, right? But that's peculiar of him. But I would not recommend to follow that path for pretty much anyway.
0: One last thing. I mean, so, so when talking to the patient about something, I mean, for example, for me, for even for vasectomies, the patient asked me, how many have you done? are these patients so desperate to have a solution that, I mean, do do you get asked that question or that's something that doesn't come up?
1: Well, even if it doesn't come up, I usually tell the patient. I usually tell the patient, I not have done many of those, but I have done a lot of this. I think I have the experience. I think I have the knowledge and the resources. And the thing is also that yeah, you can refer the patient, but there is not, for some cases, there is, even if, if there is people with experience, there, there is not that much experience in terms because Five cases, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very new, right? It's very new, and if it's going to bad, it's, it's going to be bad. But I tell the patients, you know, I, I have done these thousand of cases already for robotics, and I have done this amount of cases of this case. We have been doing robotics, I mean, reconstructive cases for that long. But that guy that has Teflon, an infiltration of Teflon, because he he had an open radical prostatectomy. He was incontinent, and then he received an injection of Teflon. And it was just a full structure, right? So that guy had been moving around for more than a decade, like more 15 years. Fifteen, wow. Yeah. So that guy, okay, I can refer you, who has experience with a Teflon injection? I ask everybody, I know, and nobody knows how it's going to look, so it's, I can refer you. You did it already? You did that one already? Yeah, it was very bad. Like, uh, we could do pretty much everything, but the problem was the urethra. The the Teflon, it was injected uh, around the sphincter, but I think it was in terms of gravity, right? Then the, the teflon moved and involved the bulbar urethra. And when I said involved, I said that, that we dissect the bulbar urethra and it was very dusky and bad. And so we dissected all until the anastomosis. I was going to take down the anastomosis but to do a redo, but there was not enough length of the urethra to reach because it was like two centimeters from the a sphincter to the bulbar almost penile, so it was very dusky, and it was so. And then the patient didn't want really a cystectomy because for him, really, it was in terms of just remove the cystostomy and have a place his funeral sphincter and have a normal life. But he didn't want a cystectomy, so at the end we have to try to put everything in place. Wow. After after
0: mobilize everything. Wow! So you have to. I mean, you close the bladder neck, or what do
1: you do after that? No, I didn't cut the posterior part of the Okay. I cut the anterior part, and I decide to don't cut the posterior part until I was pretty sure that we have very good urethra, because I know that at that point you, you are just are compromised to do something right? when the mars starts the dissection of the urethra and Start to do these noises and okay, yeah, cool. so I know that something was bad. And when we see it, it was like was a lot of scar tissue around the but bad but bad scar tissue. And some point we think like maybe we can do an augmented. So it, the augmented is like you and you join the posterior plate and then in at the anterior part you put a vocal mucosograph or something. But anyway with that, that the return was not going to reach because this. It's, when you put tension, you see the, the penis is going, it starts to get imbricated, so it was not possible. So it was, It is very difficult after six, six hours to say, okay, uh, no more. For the patient, it's like you, always you want to have a happy end, right? Yeah, you, you give it a try. Wow. So after six hours of surgery,
0: back to square one. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad that didn't discourage you to I and mean, just continue to challenge yourself with those cases.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know, I am not sh- sure. Maybe it's, it's the result of everything we have discussed, right? All my, my journey to, to be here, it has made me more appreciative of what I have. I, I know that the person that I know, it's because I have the perspective of, of all the things that I have passed through, and all the people that helped me. And gave me pretty much the opportunity because, at the end, if I have learned something, is you need somebody to give you opportunity for something, right? In all aspects of your life, even when you born, when you born, your your mother and father, your friends, mm-hmm. your wife, in life is the same. And every patient that knocks your door is pretty much he's giving you the opportunity to to be better and do something for them. So, I am really happy. Of what I am doing, I really feel like I am very can fulfill many things, and I am dreaming. I have living kind of a dream. I am doing just robotics. My practice is private practice. It's difficult to do what I do in private practice, no matter what area of the world you are, because it's different aspect when you do private practice, right? But I'm very happy doing this, and I get paid for that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, it had uh, life has been very good, I think so, at the end. And I, I have been able to help my family share with very good friends like you this time.
0: And Ronan, and also I want to thank you. I mean, you, you were one of those that, that gave me the opportunity to be a urologist. I was doing my second year of, of general surgery, and I was, I think, that was the last person that got into urology after the second year of after surgery not knowing what the future was going to be, and you were there backing me up and telling the attendants, you and Javier, hey, this guy needs to be a urologist. Definitely thank you for that. I mean, I'll never forget
1: that. It's part of try to give the opportunity to somebody that really deserves the opportunity and recognize the same. It's like you see some aspects of the person in yourself, right? And you deserve it, and you're doing great things with, that opportunity. I really congratulate you for that. No, no,
0: thank you, Ronald. And the same to you, that, that journey is amazing, and you have definitely, if there was someone with doubt, definitely, there shouldn't be any doubt from what you have done. Thank you. okay, Ronald, anything else you want to add? I think we have covered a lot. I mean, your, your, your journey, your history, it's mind-blowing, and, and I don't know, if anything
1: else you want to do, we want to add, just go ahead. Well, no, thank you for the opportunity again. I am in, in Puerto Rico, if was to contact, can contact Oche, Dr. Jose Silva. Yeah, The island is, is beautiful any time of the year. You can see some cases and go to the beach. You're more than welcome to visit us. Thanks again for the opportunity. It has been fun and means a lot to me, really.
0: Dr. Cadillo Ronald, uh, he is very approachable. So, any of you guys listening that you want to have an experience and, and see some cases, I mean, Definitely reach out to us and we'll put you in contact with him. Okay, take care, Ron, and thank you for everything. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron
1: Boles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing, led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrune.
0: Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee kennebrew Thanks again for listening and see you next week.